Welcome to Just Listen, a celebration of literature from Nashville Public Library. For more stories and poetry, visit our website at library.nashville.org. Please feel free to leave a comment or to make requests or recommendations. And now, for today's selection. Mademoiselle Fifi is a short story by Guy de Maupassant. In Brussels in 1882 and in Paris the next year, a book with the same name included it in a collection of Maupassant's short stories. It has been reprinted many times. Perhaps today's story was inspired by some remarks in Maupassant's 1880 story, Boule de Suif, also found here on Just Listen, and is another account of a fictional incident of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. It includes some adult situations likely not suitable for small children. Although events in the story circle around war and the Prussian occupation of French cities and towns and might be considered uninteresting by some readers, Maupassant's genius in the creation of characters that we can truly believe in draws in readers from all walks of life. Today we focus on fictional events occurring 150 years ago. Maupassant brings them to us as though they had occurred only yesterday. Maupassant's mastery of the short story form and his prolific output as an author made him famous and rich in his own time. Although he often depicted human lives, destinies, and social forces in disillusioned and pessimistic terms, his stories contain enough of the glow of human achievement, compassion, and kindness to create balance in his exhaustive repertoire. Maupassant was one of a fair number of 19th-century Parisians, including Charles Gounod, Alexandre Dumas, Fils, and Charles Garnier, who did not care for the Eiffel Tower, erected in 1887 to 1889. He often ate lunch in the restaurant at its base, not out of preference for the food, but because only there could he avoid seeing its otherwise unavoidable profile. He and 46 other Parisian literary and artistic nobles attached their names to an elaborately irate letter of protest against the tower's construction, written to the Minister of Public Works and published on 14th of February, 1887. Today, we recognize the Eiffel Tower as the most iconic and enduring symbol of Paris, recognized everywhere in the world. And now, Mademoiselle Fifi, by Guy de Maupassant. We begin. The Major Graf von Farlsberg, the Prussian commandant, or Comte, was reading his newspaper lying back in a great armchair with his booted feet on the beautiful marble fireplace, where his spurs had made two holes, which grew deeper every day during the three months that he had been in the Chateau of Urville. A cup of coffee was smoking on a small inlaid table, which was stained with liquors, burnt by cigars, notched by the penknife of the victorious officer, who occasionally would stop while sharpening a pencil to jot down figures or to make a drawing on it, just as it took his fancy. When he had read his letters and the German newspapers, which his baggage master had brought him, he got up, and after throwing three or four enormous pieces of green wood onto the fire— for these gentlemen were gradually cutting down the park in order to keep themselves warm, he went to the window. 
The rain was descending in torrents, a regular Normandy rain, which looked as if it were being poured out by some furious hand, a slanting rain, which was as thick as a curtain, and which formed a kind of wall with oblique stripes, and which deluged everything, a regular rain, such as one frequently experiences in the neighborhood of Rouen, which is the watering pot of France. For a long time the officer looked at the sodden turf and at the swollen andel beyond it, which was overflowing its banks, and he was drumming a waltz from the Rhine on the window panes with his fingers when a noise made him turn round. It was his second in command, Captain Baron von Kelweinstein. The major was a giant with broad shoulders and a long fair beard which hung like a cloth onto his chest. His whole solemn person suggested the idea of a military peacock, a peacock who was carrying his tail spread out onto his breast. He had cold, gentle blue eyes and the scar from a sword cut, which he had received in the war with Austria. He was said to be an honorable man as well as a brave officer. The captain, a short, red-faced man, who was tightly girthed in at the waist, had his red hair cropped quite close to his head, and in certain lights almost looked as if he had been rubbed over with phosphorus. He had lost two front teeth one night, though he could not quite remember how. This defect made him speak so that he could not always be understood, and he had a bald patch on the top of his head, which made him look rather like a monk, with a fringe of curly, bright golden hair round the circle of bare skin. The commandant shook hands with him and drank his cup of coffee, the sixth that morning, in one gulp, while he listened to his subordinate's report of what had occurred, and then they both went to the window and declared that it was a very unpleasant outlook. The major, who was a quiet man, with a wife at home, could accommodate himself to everything. But the captain, who was a party type, being in the habit of frequenting low resorts and much given to women, was mad at having been shut up for three months in the compulsory chastity of that wretched hole. There was a knock at the door, and when the commandant said, Come in, one of their robot-like soldiers appeared, and by his mere presence announced that breakfast was ready. In the dining room they met three other officers of low rank, a lieutenant, Otto van Grossling, and two sub-lieutenants, Fritz Scheunberg and Count van Eyrich, a very short, fair-haired man who was proud and brutal toward his men, harsh toward prisoners, and violent as a firearm. Since he had been in France, his comrades had called him nothing but Mademoiselle Fifi. They had given him that nickname on account of his dandified style and small waist, which looked as if he wore stays from his pale face on which his budding moustache scarcely showed, and on account of the habit he had acquired of employing the French expression Fifi donc, which he pronounced with a slight whistle when he wished to express his sovereign contempt for persons or things. The dining-room of the chateau was a magnificent long room, whose fine old mirrors, now cracked by pistol-bullets, and Flemish tapestry, now cut to ribbons and hanging in rags in places from sword-cuts, told too well what Mademoiselle Fifi's occupation was during his spare time. There were three family portraits on the walls, a steel-clad knight, a cardinal, 
and a judge, who were all smoking long porcelain pipes, which had been inserted into holes in the canvas, while a lady in a long, pointed waist proudly exhibited an enormous pair of mustaches drawn with a piece of charcoal. The officers ate their breakfast almost in silence in that mutilated room, which looked dull in the rain and melancholy under its vanquished appearance, although its old oak floor had become as solid as the stone floor of a public house. When they had finished eating and were smoking and drinking, they began as usual to talk about the dull life they were leading. The bottles of brandy and of liquors passed from hand to hand, and all sat back in their chairs, taking repeated sips from their glasses, and scarcely removing the long bent stems, which terminated in china bowls painted in a manner to delight a hottentot from their mouths. As soon as their glasses were empty, they filled them again, with a gesture of resigned weariness. But Mademoiselle Fifi emptied his every minute, and a soldier immediately gave him another. They were enveloped in a cloud of strong tobacco smoke. They seemed to be sunk in a state of drowsy, stupid intoxication, in that dull state of drunkenness of men who have nothing to do. But suddenly the baron sat up and said, "'By heavens, this cannot go on. We must think of something to do.' And on hearing this, Lieutenant Otto and Sub-Lieutenant Fritz, who preeminently possessed the grave, heavy German countenance, said, "'What, Captain?' He thought for a few moments and then replied, "'What? Well, we must get up some entertainment, if the Commandant will allow us.' "'What sort of an entertainment, Captain?' the Major asked, taking his pipe out of his mouth. "'I will arrange all that, Commandant,' the Baron said. "'I will send the duty to Rouen, who will bring us some ladies. I know where they can be found.' We will have supper here, as all the materials are at hand, and at least we shall have a jolly evening. Graf von Farlsberg shrugged his shoulders with a smile. You must surely be mad, my friend. But all the other officers got up, surrounded their chief, and said, Let the captain have his own way, commandant. It is terribly dull here. And the major ended by yielding. Very well, he replied, and the baron immediately sent for duty. Duty was an old corporal who had never been seen to smile, but who carried out all the orders of his superiors to the letter, no matter what they might be. He stood there with an impressive face while he received the baron's instructions, and then went out. Five minutes later a large wagon belonging to the military train, covered with a miller's tilt, galloped off as fast as four horses could take it, under the pouring rain, and the officers all seemed to awaken from their lethargy. Their looks brightened, and they began to talk. Although it was raining as hard as ever, the Major declared that it was not so dull, and Lieutenant von Grossling said with conviction that the sky was clearing up, while Mademoiselle Fifi did not seem to be able to keep in his place. He got up and sat down again, and his bright eyes seemed to be looking for something to destroy. Suddenly, looking at the lady with the mustaches, the young fellow pulled out his revolver and said, "'You shall not see it.' and without leaving his seat he aimed and with two successive bullets cut out both the eyes of the portrait. "'Let us make a mine!' he then exclaimed, and the conversation was suddenly interrupted as if they had found some fresh and powerful subject of interest. The mine was his invention, his method of destruction, and his favorite amusement. 
When he left the chateau, the lawful owner, Count Fernand d'Amois d'Urville, had not had time to carry away or to hide anything except the plate which had been stowed away in a hole made in one of the walls, so that, as he was very rich and had good taste, the large drawing-room, which opened into the dining-room, had looked like the gallery in a museum before his precipitate flight." Expensive oil paintings, watercolors, and drawings hung upon the walls, while on the tables, on the hanging shelves, and in elegant glass cupboards, there were a thousand knick-knacks, small vases, statuettes, groups in Dresden, China, grotesque Chinese figures, old ivory and Venetian glass, which filled the large room with their precious and fantastical array. Scarcely anything was left now. Not that the things had been stolen, for the Major would not have allowed that, but Mademoiselle Fifi would have a mine, and on that occasion all the officers thoroughly enjoyed themselves for five minutes. The little Marquis went into the drawing-room to get what he wanted, and he brought back a small, delicate china teapot, which he filled with gunpowder, and carefully introduced a piece of German tinder into it through the spout. Then he lighted it and took this infernal machine into the next room, but he came back immediately and shut the door. The Germans all stood expectantly, their faces full of childish, smiling curiosity, and as soon as the explosion had shaken the chateau, they all rushed in at once. Mademoiselle Fifi, who got in first, clapped his hands in delight at the sight of a terracotta Venus whose head had been blown off, and each picked up pieces of porcelain and wondered at the strange shape of the fragments, while the Major was looking with a paternal eye at the large drawing-room, which had been wrecked in the style of Nero, and which was strewn with the fragments of works of art. He went out first and said with a smile, "'He managed that very well.' But there was such a cloud of smoke in the dining-room, mingled with the tobacco smoke, that they could not breathe, so the commandant opened the window and all the officers, who had gone into the room for a glass of cognac, went up to it. The moist air blew into the room and brought a sort of spray with it, which powdered their beards. They looked at the tall trees which were dripping with the rain, at the broad valley which was covered with mist, and at the church spire in the distance which rose up like a gray point in the beating rain. The bells had not rung since their arrival. That was the only resistance which the invaders had met with in the neighborhood. The parish priest had not refused to take in and to feed the Prussian soldiers. He had several times even drunk a bottle of beer or claret with the hostile commandant, who often employed him as a benevolent intermediary. But it was no use to ask him for a single stroke of the bells. He would sooner have allowed himself to be shot— that was his way of protesting against the invasion, a peaceful and silent protest, the only one, he said, which was suitable to a priest who was a man of mildness and not of blood. And everyone for twenty-five miles around praised Abbe Chantavoine's firmness and heroism in venturing to proclaim the public mourning by the obstinate silence of his church bells. The whole village grew enthusiastic over his resistance and was ready to back up their pastor and to risk anything as they looked upon that silent protest as the safeguard of the national honor. It seemed to the peasants that they had deserved better of their country than Belfort and Strasbourg, that they had set an equally valuable example, and that the name of their little village would become immortalized by that. But with that exception, they refused their Prussian conquerors nothing. 
The commandant and his officers laughed among themselves at that inoffensive courage, and as the people in the whole country round showed themselves obliging and compliant toward them, they willingly tolerated their silent patriotism. Only little Count Wilhelm would have liked to have forced them to ring the bells. He was very angry at his superior's politic compliance with the scruples of the priest, and every day he begged the commandant to allow him to sound ding-dong, ding-dong, just once, only just once, just by way of a joke. And he asked it like a wheedling woman, in the tender voice of some mistress who wishes to obtain something. But the commandant himself would not yield, and to console herself, Mademoiselle Fifi made a mine in the chateau. The five men stood there together for some minutes, inhaling the moist air, and at last Lieutenant Fritz said, with a laugh, "'The ladies will certainly not have fine weather for their drive.' Then they separated, each to his own duties, while the captain had plenty to do in seeing about the dinner. When they met again, as it was growing dark, they began to laugh at seeing each other as dandified and smart as on the day of a grand review. The commandant's hair did not look as gray as it did in the morning, and the captain had shaved, had only kept his mustache on, which made him look as if he had a streak of fire under his nose. In spite of the rain, they left the window open, and one of them went to listen from time to time. At a quarter past six, the baron said he heard a rumbling in the distance. They all rushed down, and soon the wagon drove up at a gallop with its four horses splashed up to their backs, steaming and panting. Five women got out at the bottom of the steps, five handsome girls whom a comrade of the captain, to whom duty had taken his card, had selected with care. They had not required much pressing, as they were sure of being well treated, for they had got to know the Prussians in the three months during which they had had to do with them. So they resigned themselves to the men as they did to the state of affairs. It is part of our business, so it must be done, they said as they drove along, no doubt to allay some slight secret scruples of conscience. They went into the dining room immediately, which looked still more dismal in its dilapidated state when it was lighted up. While the table covered with choice dishes, the beautiful china and glass and the plate, which had been found in the hole in the wall where its owner had hidden it, gave to the place the look of a bandit's resort, where they were supping after committing a robbery. The captain was radiant. He took hold of the women as if he were familiar with them, appraising them, kissing them, valuing them for what they were worth as ladies of pleasure. And when the three young men wanted to appropriate one each, he opposed them authoritatively, reserving to himself the right to apportion them justly, according to their several ranks, so as not to wound the hierarchy. Therefore, so as to avoid all discussion, jarring, and suspicion of partiality, he placed them all in a line according to height, and addressing the tallest, he said in a voice of command, "'What's your name?' "'Pamela,' she replied, raising her voice. Then he said, "'Number one, called Pamela, is adjudged to the commandant.' Then, having kissed Blondina, the second, as a sign of proprietorship, he proffered stout Amanda to Lieutenant Otto, Eva, the tomato, to Sub-Lieutenant Fritz, and Rachel, the shortest of them all, a very young, dark girl with eyes as black as ink, a Jewess, to the youngest officer, frail Count Wilhelm von Eyrich. 
They were all pretty and plump, without any distinctive features, and all were very much alike in look and person, from their daily dissipation and the life common to houses of public accommodation. The three younger men wished to carry off their women immediately, under the pretext of finding them brushes and soap. But the captain wisely opposed this, for he said they were quite fit to sit down to dinner, and that those who went up would wish for a change when they came down, and so would disturb the other couples, and his experience in such matters carried the day. There were only many kisses, expectant kisses. Suddenly Rachel choked and began to cough until the tears came into her eyes, while smoke came through her nostrils. Under pretense of kissing her, the Count had blown a whiff of tobacco into her mouth. She did not fly into a rage and did not say a word, but she looked at her possessor with latent hatred in her dark eyes. They sat down to dinner. The Commandant seemed delighted. He made Pamela sit on his right and Blondina on his left, and said as he unfolded his table napkin, "'That was a delightful idea of yours, Captain.' Lieutenants Otto and Fritz, who were as polite as if they had been with fashionable ladies, rather intimidated their neighbors, but Baron von Kelleinstein gave the reins to all his vicious propensity, beamed, made doubtful remarks, and seemed on fire with his crown of red hair. He paid them compliments in French from the other side of the Rhine, and sputtered out gallant remarks, only fit for a low pothouse, from between his two broken teeth." They did not understand him, however, and their intelligence did not seem to be awakened until he uttered nasty words and broad expressions which were mangled by his accent. Then all began to laugh at once, like mad women, and fell against each other, repeating the words which the baron then began to say all wrong, in order that he might have the pleasure of hearing them say doubtful things. They gave him as much of that stuff as he wanted, for they were drunk after the first bottle of wine, and becoming themselves once more, and opening the door to their usual habits, they kissed the mustaches on the right and left of them, pinched their arms, uttered furious cries, drank out of every glass, and sang French couplets and bits of German songs, which they had picked up in their daily intercourse with the enemy." Soon the men themselves, intoxicated by that which was displayed to their sight and touch, grew very amorous, shouted and broke the plates and dishes, while the soldiers behind them waited on them stolidly. The commandant was the only one who put any restraint upon himself. Mademoiselle Fifi had taken Rachel onto his knees, and getting excited, at one moment kissed the little black curls on her neck, inhaling the pleasant warmth of her body and all the savor of her person, through the slight space there was between her dress and her skin, and at another pinched her furiously through the material and made her scream, for he was seized with a species of ferocity and tormented by his desire to hurt her. He often held her close to him, as if to make her part of himself, and put his lips in a long kiss on the Jewess's rosy mouth, until she lost her breath, and at last he bit her until a stream of blood ran down her chin and onto her bodice. For the second time she looked him full in the face, and as she bathed the wound she said, "'You will have to pay for that!' But he merely laughed a hard laugh and said, "'I will pay!' At dessert, champagne was served, and the commandant rose, and in the same voice in which he would have drunk to the health of the Empress Augusta, he drank. To our ladies, 
Then a series of toasts began, toasts worthy of the lowest soldiers and of drunkards, mingled with filthy jokes, which were made still more brutal by their ignorance of the language. They stood up one after the other, trying to say something witty, forcing themselves to be funny, and the women, who were so drunk that they almost fell off their chairs, with vacant looks and clammy tongues, applauded madly each time. The captain, who no doubt wished to impart an appearance of gallantry to the orgy, raised his glass again and said, "'To our victories over hearts!' Thereupon Lieutenant Otto, who was a species of bear from the Black Forest, jumped up inflamed and saturated with drink, and seized by an access of alcoholic patriotism, cried, "'To our victories over France!' Drunk as they were, the women were silent, and Rachel turned round with a shudder and said, "'Look here, I know some Frenchmen, in whose presence you would not dare to say that.' But the little Count, still holding her on his knees, began to laugh, for the wine had made him very merry, and said, "'Ha, ha, ha! I have never met any of them myself. As soon as we show ourselves, they run away.' The girl, who was in a terrible rage, shouted into his face, "'You are a lying, dirty scoundrel!' For a moment he looked at her steadily, with his bright eyes upon her, as he had looked at the portrait before he destroyed it with revolver bullets, and then he began to laugh. "'Ah, yes, talk about them, my dear. Should we be here now if they were brave?' Then, getting excited, he exclaimed, "'We are the masters. France belongs to us.' She jumped off his knees with a bound and threw herself into her chair, while he rose, held out his glass over the table, and repeated— France and the French, the woods, the fields, and the houses of France belong to us. The others, who were quite drunk and who were suddenly seized by military enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of brutes, seized their glasses and, shouting, Long live Prussia, emptied them at a gulp. The girls did not protest, for they were reduced to silence and were afraid. Even Rachel did not say a word, as she had no reply to make, and then the little Count put his champagne glass, which had just been refilled, onto the head of the Jewess, and exclaimed, "'All the women in France belong to us also!' At that she got up so quickly that the glass upset, spilling the amber-colored wine onto her black hair as if to baptize her, and broke into a hundred fragments as it fell onto the floor." With trembling lips she defied the looks of the officer, who was still laughing, and she stammered out in a voice choked with rage, "'That, that, that is not true, for you shall certainly not have any French women.' He sat down again so as to laugh at his ease, and trying ineffectually to speak in the Parisian accent, he said, "'That is good, very good. Then what did you come here for, my dear?' She was thunderstruck, and made no reply for a moment, for in her agitation she did not understand him at first. But as soon as she grasped his meaning, she said to him indignantly and vehemently, "'I, I, I am not a woman. I am only a whore, and that is all that Prussians want.' Almost before she had finished, he slapped her full in the face— but as he was raising his hand again as if he would strike her, she, almost mad with passion, took up a small dessert knife from the table and stabbed him right in the neck, just above the breastbone. 
Something that he was going to say was cut short in his throat, and he sat there with his mouth half open and a terrible look in his eyes. All the officers shouted in horror and leaped up tumultuously, but throwing her chair between Lieutenant Otto's legs, who fell down at full length, she ran to the window, opened it before they could seize her, and jumped out into the night and pouring rain. In two minutes, Mademoiselle Fifi was dead. Fritz and Otto drew their swords and wanted to kill the women, who threw themselves at their feet and clung to their knees. With some difficulty, the Major stopped the slaughter and had the four terrified girls locked up in a room under the care of two soldiers. Then he organized the pursuit of the fugitive as carefully as if he were about to engage in a skirmish, feeling quite sure that she would be caught. Fifty men were severely warned to search the park thoroughly. Two hundred other soldiers were tasked to search the woods and all the houses in the valley. The table, which had been cleared immediately, now served as a bed on which to lay Fifi out, and the four officers made for the window, rigid and sobered, with the stern faces of soldiers on duty, and tried to pierce through the darkness of the night amid the steady torrent of rain. Suddenly a shot was heard, and then another, a long way off, and for four hours they heard, from time to time, near or distant reports and rallying cries, strange words uttered as a call in guttural voices. In the morning they all returned. Two soldiers had been killed and three others wounded by their comrades in the ardor of that chase and in the confusion of such a nocturnal pursuit, but they had not caught Rachel. Then the inhabitants of the district were terrorized, the houses were turned topsy-turvy, the country was scoured and beaten up over and over again, but the Jewess did not seem to have left a single trace of her passage behind her. When the general was told of it, he gave orders to hush up the affair so as not to set a bad example to the army, but he severely censured the commandant, who in turn punished his inferiors. The general had said, one does not go to war in order to amuse oneself and to caress prostitutes. And Graf von Farlsberg, in his exasperation, made up his mind to have his revenge on the district. But as he required a pretext for showing severity, he sent for the priest and ordered him to have the bell tolled at the funeral of Count von Eirich. Contrary to all expectation, the priest showed himself humble and most respectful, and when Mademoiselle Fifi's body left the Chateau d'Urville on its way to the cemetery, carried by soldiers, preceded, surrounded, and followed by soldiers who marched with loaded rifles, for the first time the bell sounded its funereal knell in a lively manner, as if a friendly hand were caressing it. At night it sounded again, and the next day, and every day, it rang as much as anyone could desire. Sometimes even it would start at night and sound gently through the darkness, seized by strange joy, awakened one could not tell why. All the peasants in the neighborhood declared that it was bewitched, and nobody except the priest and the sacristan would now go near the church tower, and they went because a poor girl was living there in grief and solitude, secretly nourished by those two men. She remained there until the German troops departed, and then one evening the priest borrowed the baker's cart and himself drove his prisoner to Rouen. When they got there, he embraced her, 
and she quickly went back on foot to the establishment from which she had come, where the proprietress, who thought that she was dead, was very glad to see her. A short time afterward, a patriot who had no prejudices, who liked her because of her bold deed, and who afterward loved her for herself, married her, and made a lady of her. Maupassant had a natural aversion to society, and in his later years he developed a constant desire for solitude, an obsession for self-preservation, and a fear of death and paranoia of persecution caused by the syphilis he had contracted in his youth. On January 2, 1892, Maupassant tried to commit suicide by cutting his own throat. He was committed to the private asylum of Esprit Blanche at Passy in Paris, where he died on July 6, 1893, from syphilis. Maupassant penned his own epitaph. I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. He is buried in section 26 of the Montparnasse Cemetery in Paris. Thanks for joining us. Tune in to another session of Just Listen by visiting your Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org.